Well, as you're taking your seats, if you haven't met me yet, my name is Jason Faber, and I'm an assistant pastor here at Sovereign Grace Church. I oversee most of the biblical counseling that happens here. And uh, good to see everyone here. If this is your first time with us, uh, just by way of, of a heads up as to the format, um, it'll be busted up into two sections. The first section will be uh, me direct teaching, and then the second section will be where we have a question and answer time. Chad will come up here and join me. And you can either text your questions in to the phone number that's going to be up behind me, um, or you can come down to this microphone right here and, uh, and speak your, your question to the microphone, and we can answer it that way. But before we uh, get started this evening, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into what we're going to talk about tonight. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, what an immense privilege it is to gather together as your children, as your people, and to learn from your word. We're so thankful for it. We're thankful that you have not left us in the darkness of our own hearts. You've not left us in the darkness of this lost, broken, fallen, sinful world, but you have spoken your truth um, into, into our dark world clearly um, to us in your word. And so we're thankful for that, and we pray that you would incline our hearts towards you, that you would um, soften our hearts to love your word, and that we would take an honest look at our lives and be willing to say where we need to change um, because we are a changed people because of what you have done for us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. So we pray that your spirit would come and fill us tonight and that we would glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if this is the first time that, that you have been at the Summer Evening Series with us covering um, singleness, marriage, parenting, and how the gospel relates to those things, I want to give you a little bit of an overview of what we've talked about so far. In the first two sessions, we sort of laid a groundwork for how Christians are to approach all of life. All of life is to be approached and lived for the glory of God. That is why God has created all things. All thing exists uh, to the praise of his glorious grace. The problem, of course, is that we don't live for his glory. We don't want to glorify him. And so how are we to live that way if, if we have sinful, fallen hearts that don't want to glorify him? Um, we're thankful that, that God sent Jesus to glorify the Father perfectly in our place and to pay the penalty for all the ways that we've fallen short. So our only hope is to be united with Jesus, um, to have him be our substitute in his life and in his death, and then to have the Holy Spirit um, make us a new creation and change our hearts and give us new desires so that we want to please God. We want to live for his glory now. And uh, the way that we grow practically into who we are in Christ is through reading God's word, speak, hearing him speak to us in that way, um, speaking back to him through prayer, um, fellowshipping with other believers who speak the truth into our lives and live life alongside us. And this is the way that we grow. So Chad talked about in the first session, the goal being the glory of God um, in our lives. And the means by which we actually do that is the gospel and God's word and prayer and, and living in community together. And last week, if you weren't here, we, we opened up the topic of, of uh, the, how the gospel affects marriage specifically. And last week was really foundational for everything that we're going to talk about in regards to marriage because we answered the question, what is a gospel-centered marriage? And we saw that a gospel-centered marriage is a marriage that understands that um, God has loved us in Jesus. Um, we are the bride of Christ 
as the church. And so because of the love that we have been shown by our great bridegroom, Jesus Christ, we are then to take that covenant faithful love that he's shown us and show it to our spouses. So a a gospel-centered marriage is all about grace. I'm showing grace to each other, the grace that God has shown us, ourselves, and knowing that God's marriage to his people is the ultimate reality, and our marriages just point to that ultimate reality. They're a sign, they're a picture of that ultimate reality. So we need to keep that in mind as we talk about um, everything that we're going to talk about, all the different topics in regards to marriage over the next few weeks, and and tonight is no exception. Tonight, we're going to talk about, as you can see behind me, gender roles Um, in marriage, gospel-centered roles in marriage. And I don't think I have to necessarily spend much time on convincing you of the relevance of tonight's topic. Um, You don't have to spend much time reading the news or watching movies or even just living amongst the world to know that there is massive confusion about sexual identity. Massive, and it saddens me. It, It should sadden all of us. Um, because nature, the way that God has created us is clear as to, as to what our sexuality is. And scripture is clear as to what those, uh, what those gender roles that God has called us to are. And so I think part of the, the confusion about sexual identity stems from our rebellion against God's authority in, in telling us what our gender roles actually are. So tonight we're going we're gonna to look at what scripture has to say in the beginning about gender specifically, uh, I'm sorry, gen, uh, gender generally, and then specifically what those gender roles look like in marriage. Does that make sense? So that's, that's what we're going to do um, tonight. But if you, you know anything about um, how Christians tend to approach uh, gender roles, there are two main schools of thought. The first one is egalitarianism, or, or we probably know it as evangelical feminism. They're so close in, in how they think about these things that I'm just going to lump them together. And here's the egalitarians argue that uh, male and female are both created in the image of God, and because of that, there shouldn't be any distinction in roles. There shouldn't be any differentiation between roles between the genders. And so that's, that's their argument. And um, it affects the way that they read scripture. It affects the way that they read their, uh, the, the, way, the way that they live their lives. It affects everything. And we here at Sovereign Grace, what we hold to is a position called complementarianism. And complementarianism is uh, the belief that God created man and woman as equals equally made in the image of God, but with differing roles that complement one another, hence complementarianism. And I want to give you a general definition of masculinity and femininity from a biblical complementarian whose name is John Piper. I think most of you are probably familiar with him. And just so you know, if I define anything, I will post it up on on the Facebook page so you don't have to worry about trying to, to write it all down tonight. But here's how John Piper defines masculinity from a biblical standpoint. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. I'm going to say that again. At the heart of mature masculinity 
is a sense of benevolent or loving responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships. John Piper goes on to define femininity from a biblical standpoint as as the following. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. Let me say that again. At the heart of mature femininity is a freeing disposition to affirm, receive, and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in ways appropriate to a woman's differing relationships. And the reason I start there is so that we have that big picture in mind as we talk about the differing gender roles. And I also start out there um, to let you know how relevant this is to all of the single folks that are out there tonight. Um, for all you single folks, a great place for you to start in, in your preparation for marriage and just in your walk with the Lord is asking yourself, um, how, how am I, am I, is my life characterized by, the, by this? If, if you're a young man, ask yourself, is, is the general tenor of my life and my interactions with females that I am, I am serving them and loving them and leading them and providing for them and protecting them in ways that are appropriate to given the nature of whatever relationship you have with the females around you. That's a great place to start. Um, for the females out there, it's a great place for you to say, uh, look at your life and say, is the general tenor of my life such that um, in the relationships that I have with other men, that, that I, am, I have this freeing disposition to affirm and receive and nurture strength and leadership from worthy men in my life in ways that are appropriate to whatever the nature of our relationship is. I think that's extremely important. Um, one, so that you can live your life to the glory of God because your gender is, is, is very much central to who you are. And, and secondly, it's to prepare you for marriage. To start asking those questions so that you can begin to build the character as a woman or as a man that you need to have to be able to love your spouse um, should the Lord choose to bless you with the, the gift of marriage. So um, we as a church, again, believe that Scripture's clear that complementarianism um, is, is clearly there in Scripture. That's what we hold to here at Sovereign Grace. That's what you're going to hear coming from the pulpit. That's what you'll hear in our, our grace groups. That's what you'll hear from us if you come to us for counseling. Um, you don't have to be a complementarian to be a member here, but just so you know, that's what you're going to hear um, taught by us because we believe that, that Scripture is clearly um, complementarian in its approach to gender roles in the context of marriage. But I don't want you to just accept that on my authority. I want to clearly show that to you from the authority of Scripture. So tonight as we look at Scripture, we're going to see four truths about gender roles specifically in marriage. We're going to see that gender roles in marriage are rooted in creation, distorted by the fall, redeemed in Jesus, and still relevant today. They're rooted in creation, distorted by the fall, redeemed in Jesus, and still relevant today. So first, let's look at how they're rooted in creation, rooted in creation. And obviously, in order to see that, we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the book, uh, to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, and what we see there is that men and women are equals. 
They're equals in that they equally bear God's image. They're both made in the image of God. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27 with me. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we see is that our um, role differences do not spring from a difference of value. Men are not called to lead because they are wiser or more rational or more emotionally stable or whatever general uh, stereotype you want to throw on there. That's not why they're called to be leaders. And women aren't called to be submissive because they are um, irrational and driven by emotions or any of the things that you may have heard. Um, They are equally made in the image of God. Their ontological worth and value is the same. It's the same. So we need to realize that because our role differences, when they work in harmony with each other, the way that God created them to, we glorify him. It wasn't enough for Adam to just be alone and glorify God. He couldn't do that on his own. He needed a woman. He needed community, male and female, in order to reflect the image of God. The second thing that we see from Scripture um, and how gender roles are rooted in creation is that though men and women are equally made in the image of God, they do, in fact, have different roles. They have different roles, even though they're equally made in the image of God. We see this in Genesis chapter 2, if you just flip the page there, verses 18 through 23. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now the first thing that we need to notice here in regards to the the differentiation of roles is that in verse 18, the Lord says that he's making a helper fit for the man. So woman was created to be a helper to man. It's, it's, not, the, it's not the other way around. He, she was created um, to help him. She was created to support Adam and to be able to fulfill the calling to which God had called him. And frankly, Adam was incomplete in his role without her. He's got all the animals parading in front of him and they've all got their mate suited uh, helper to glorify um, God together and Adam doesn't have this, this helper. And so God says, I'm going to create her for you. I'm going to create a helper suitable for you. And we also see the role differences in the fact that Adam is the one who actually names the woman. And that's significant because what else does Adam name? 
He names all the animals, doesn't he? And what is that a sign of? That's a sign of the responsibility, the stewardship that he has over God's creation. The authority that he's been given by God to exercise over God's creation. And so here we see Adam um, naming the animals and now naming the woman and saying she was taken out of me. And so what that means is that Adam's been um, called as a steward to be responsible for Eve, to love her and exercise loving authority um, over her. And notice how much Adam is excited about this. He is, he is enthused. He sings a song he's so excited. I like to think that he danced a little bit, but I don't know. Um, I, he's just so excited. And he, he sees her as an equal. She's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, but knows that, that she's called to help him and to support him and encourage him. And, and, and it's just a beautiful picture of this uh, perfectly knowing each other and in intimacy, no shame, the freedom that they're experiencing in marriage. And now, as beautiful as this picture is, when, when we talk about how Adam is given this responsibility to exercise authority over Eve, we all sort of cringe a little bit, don't we? Oh, I don't know if we really like that too much. Why do we cringe? Why do we cringe when we see that this is the way Lord, uh, the Lord created um, the genders to interact with each other? The reason that we cringe is because many of us, myself included, have bought into the egalitarian lie that subordination equals denigration. That if someone is having to subordinate themselves to somebody else, then that's necessarily um, denigrating to them. It shows that they have, have lesser value, that the person um, who exercises authority is more fit for it, more worthy, and the person that has to be subordinate is less worthy. And that's simply not the case. That's a lie. And the clearest evidence that we have that this is a lie is from looking at the Trinity itself. When we look at the Trinity um, one God, three persons, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we have three persons who are equally God, equally worthy of glory and honor and praise. And yet we see something interesting within the, the relationships within the Trinity. We see different roles. We see that um, the Son and the Spirit submit themselves to the Father. We see that the Spirit submits himself um, willingly to the Son. Now, is that because one of them is, is more worthy of this power and one of them is less? No, they're all equally God. They're all worthy of glory and honor and praise. And yet, we clearly see again and again from Scripture, I'll just take your favorite Bible passage, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he what? Sent his only begotten son. And so what we see is the father is the one who sends the son. The son subordinates himself to the father and says, I will go, I'm willing, let's do this, let's redeem your people, let's redeem my bride. And we also see that the, the son, Jesus in his ministry, what does he promise the disciples? I'm going I'm to send my spirit to come and reveal truth to you. you. Trust me, you want me to go so the spirit can come. I'm going to send him to you. So the spirit subordinates himself um, to the son. And we don't, this is okay, this is good. It's not denigrating. It's a beautiful thing. Um, role differences um, exist even within the Trinity itself and our role differences are a way that we uh, uh, glorify God, a way that we reflect the way that God interacts within the Godhead himself. And it brings him glory and honor and praise. So part of our being made in God's image is that we reflect those role differences
um, to the praise of his glorious grace. Now, what we, from what we've seen in Genesis 2, um, we, can, we can get a definition now of the two different gender roles in the, in the context of marriage. So let me give them to you. And again, I'll post these on Facebook. First of all, male headship is a husband's divine calling to take primary responsibility for Christ-like, read-loving, sacrificial, humble leadership, protection, and provision. So in other words, a husband's calling is to lovingly sacrifice of himself to lead, protect, and provide for his wife. And female submission can be defined as a wife's disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. It's a wife's disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. Now, I would like to stop the talk right there and say we, not, we know our roles, we're living them, we're experiencing joy because we see the wisdom of God in, uh, in giving us these roles and we, we live joyfully in the context of them. But that's not the case, is it? If your marriage is anything like mine or single folks, if you live anything like I did when I was single, we struggle with these gender, gender roles, don't we? We do, and the reason we struggle with them is because they've been distorted by the fall. That's the next thing we'll see from Scripture. They've been distorted by the fall. And it's a, the reason I, I hammer that it's distorted by the fall is because egalitarians are going to try to convince you that um, gender roles are a result of the fall. They're, they're created by the fall. They weren't in existence before, but now they are. And that's just not true. We, we've already seen that clearly from Genesis. And this leads to faulty conclusions on their part because they think they're a result of the fall. And then once we're in Christ, there, there are no more gender roles, so they're just taken away. And it's just lending itself to striking at the authority of God and lending itself to contribute to the already rampant cultural confusion about uh, sexual identity and sexual roles inside and outside of marriage. So it's important to know that they've been distorted by the fall, not created by the fall. So having said that, how have role distinctions been distorted? Well, first, let's see how it's distorted male headship. And it's really not that hard to see. (laughs) In Genesis chapter 3, Adam abdicates his responsibility to lead and provide and protect for Eve um, just in the way that the serpent comes and, and tempts her. Because when we know that in the temptation, Eve didn't have to call out for Adam to come and eat the fruit. It says she turned to him and gave it to him. Adam was standing nearby. And yet, why is the, he allowing the serpent to come and speak to his wife. He's to lead, he's to provide, he's to protect. Why isn't he taking the position of headship and protecting and being the spokesperson um, for his family unit? He's not doing it, he's abdicating his role. And as a result of that, she eats the fruit, turns around, gives it to him, he eats it knowing full well what's, what's going on, and then what happens? God comes to him and they're hiding themselves in the trees. God says, where are you? And Adam says, I, I'm naked, I'm ashamed, I, I, I'm hiding. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit? And what does Adam say? It's that woman you gave me. He's abdicating his role. Not only did he, did he not step up and take his role on, but then after the fact, he doesn't own up to it either. He just he blames the woman. And, and that's still a struggle for us today, isn't it, guys? Husbands, it's a struggle for us, isn't it? I know it's a struggle for me. It's easy for me to just 
pass the buck off, off to my wife. And, and we see this just rampant in our marriages and in our families. Instead of loving, humble leadership, we typically fall into one of two sins. And frankly, if you're like me, you waffle back and forth between the two. So what are they? On the one hand, we can fall into the sin of domination. Instead of loving and, and sacrificing ourselves and doing what's best and building our spouses, our wives up, we dominate over them. We, we abuse the authority that God has given us. And we view it as a right that we get to dismiss inconveniences to our lives. And we always get to have our way because by golly, we're the head of this household. That is not at all the picture of male headship that the, the scriptures give us. And so there are, there are milder forms of this and there are more extreme forms of this domination. And frankly, I struggle with the, the milder form. Um, the milder form being that um, I just wa- I don't want a helper. <laughs> I, especially when I was newly married, I want a cheerleader. I want someone that when I come up with, with ideas and decisions and a plan, um, Kristen just stands by and goes, yeah, Jason, you're so smart, you're so wise, this is a great idea, and, you know, is just so excited about my leadership and doesn't give me any feedback at all. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a mild form of domination. It's a sin, Because the greatest resource that the Lord has given me is my wife. My greatest uh, partner in ministry is my wife because she's going to give me helpful feedback after tonight. And, And I don't always want it. I can tell you last night, came home from a wedding and was looking over my outline and I said, can you look over this, love, to, to see what you think of the content and if there's any deficiencies? Well, she started to give me feedback that was super helpful and I was so resistant to it. I was coming up with all sorts of excuses and so I had to repent of that later on because I said, God has put you in my life to be a resource, to help me fulfill the calling that God has on my life and, and I'm rejecting that. I'm abusing the authority that God has given me. Um, now, unfortunately, there's also more extreme forms of this, um, which saddens me. It's, it's uh, uh, the, unfortunately, I, I see this in counseling quite a bit. There are extremes, extreme forms of this domination, uh, harsh physical or, or verbal or sexual abuse of wives. And this is, this is taking it to a, to a whole new level. I mean, it's still just as sinful before the Lord, but the consequences for the husband himself, what he's doing for his soul, and to his wife and to his kids are just devastating. And lest there be any confusion about the place of harshness um, in, in male headship, there's no place for it at all. Scripture is clear. Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There's no place at all for harshness in male headship. None whatsoever. Now, the other um, sin that we can fall into is passivity. Is passivity. This is where instead of um, taking up the responsibility of the authority that God has given us for our wives and for our families, we just kick back like Adam did and let our wives take the lead. We know they're going to do it, so let's just take our hands off the wheel, and I'm kind of tired, and I don't really want to argue about it, so let's just let her take over. We don't, we don't step up and take responsibility. We just let them do it. And, and that's, that's, that's not male headship. That's a sin. It's a perversion of it. Or the other way that we can do this is we just give them whatever they want. And that's not loving either. 
It's not loving to just let our wives um, have whatever they want. It's sometimes the most loving thing and the most difficult thing to do is to withhold things. Now, if that's the general pattern of your marriage, it's probably not healthy at all. Um, But as the man, you need to be willing to do that at times um, for the sake of, of your wife, what's really best for her. I want more than anything in the world to please my wife. But because God calls me to love her, at times I do have to say no um, for, for her good. And, and I love her enough to do that, even though I, I greatly struggle with it. Now, so that's how um, the fall has distorted uh, male headship. Now let's look at how the fall has distorted female submission. And again, if we look back at Genesis 3, um, after the fall, part of God's curse on the woman is that she will want to take control over her husband. That's what the text says. If you look at uh, Genesis 3.16, when the Lord is pronouncing the curse on the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, the, the reason that we know that this is talking about a wife's desire to rule over her husband is because we have this word used in a similar place in the book of Genesis. We only have to fast forward to the next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, um, where Cain is struggling with sinful envy against Abel. And the Lord comes to him, and the Lord says, you need to fight this sin. It wants to overpower you. It wants to own you. It wants to rule over you. And you need, to, you need to overpower it. You need to overrule it and suppress this sin and conquer it. Otherwise, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take over in your life. And so the same word is used here. So the picture is that because Eve tried to exercise headship by deciding to eat the fruit when Satan tempted her, her curse is now that she will desire to continue to lead in that relationship. She will continue to try to lead in that relationship. She's going to desire to rule over her husband and assume the role of leader. And I've, I've done enough marital counseling. I've been married long enough uh, to see that this desire and this struggle in the heart of women is, is alive and well. It is. And in our marriages, in our families, instead of intelligently and willingly submitting to your husbands, it's easy to fall into, again, one of two sins, one of two perversions. On the one hand, um, it's, it's tempting to just take control yourself, like Eve did. He's not stepping up. He's not, he's not uh, ex- exercising oversight and trying to lead us and take responsibility for the kids and for devotions and for finances and for where we're headed and the decision about this move and all of these things. And so the temptation is, I've got to take control. And don't get me wrong, you're probably very capable at doing that. (laughs) But it's not what God has called you to. It's not what God has called you to. It's a perversion of the submission that God calls you to as a a wife. And the other um, temptation, the other sin, is, is never feeling free to say anything. Just being a cheerleader like most of us guys want. And so you're cutting yourself off from one of the greatest resources that God has given your husband. You're you're not, uh, some women I know, they don't ever want to uh, seek to correct their husbands because they see it as disrespectful. I'm not saying that there's not a time and place for that. If you're constantly trying to correct him, that's probably not healthy. But if you don't ever push back and help him thinking about things, 
then you're cutting yourself, him, him off from the resource that is your intelligence and your wisdom and your insight and your gifts and your abilities. Your husband needs the giftings that you have in order for him to fulfill um, his calling as a husband and a father and an employee and in every other way. So, so don't, out of fear, just be quiet and not say, I know Christian wives who are so intent on being submissive that they don't, they don't say anything to their husbands. It's almost on the, uh, erring on the side of, of just remaining completely quiet. And that's not, that's not what we're talking about here either. That is a, is a perversion as well. Now, that doesn't mean you follow your husband into sin. Hear me. You are under the ultimate authority of God. Your husband's authority is not ultimate. The only authority he has the right to exercise that is authority that Christ himself has given him. And so anything that falls outside of the bounds of that, you need to tell him it's sin, and you need to tell him, I love you, but I can't follow you there. So we see this in our marriages, don't we? Um, Husbands, wives, we see this struggle. We see how we sin in not... Um, fulfilling the gender roles that God has called us to. Single folks, you see how you fall short in this as well, don't you? I was, I was constantly aware of it as a single guy, this struggle that I had to, to, to lead and provide and to protect, seeing the decisions that I was making now as how they were going to affect my family, my wife, in the future. And the reality is that we've all sinned in these ways, every single one of us. None, is, none of us has lived perfectly in regards to our gender roles so what's the solution? Is the solution the egalitarian alternative where we just say, since these, these gender roles are so messy and we're clearly sinning against them, we should just get rid of them? To echo the apostle Paul, may it never be. Because um, it's, it's, it's robbing God of his glory, it's robbing him of his authority, and it's destructive for us. So what's our hope if we can't do anything to change this? The good news is, is that Jesus came, the third thing scripture shows us, is that Jesus came um, to redeem these gender roles. These gender roles are redeemed in Jesus. And the reason that we know this is because we see Jesus in his life perfectly exercising both submission and authority. We see that, don't we? Husbands, we see Jesus um, perfectly exercising loving, humble authority throughout his entire life, particularly in Matthew, uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, what do we see the God-man, Jesus, who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise doing? He's stripping off his clothes and humbling himself and washing his disciples' feet. And he tells them, listen, The Gentiles, they take this authority and they lord it over each other. That's what they do. But that's not what you're supposed to do. Because that's that's not what I've done. I've used my authority to love you and build you up and care for you and and be responsible for you and, and treasure you and nurture you and cherish you. That's what I've done. You see, the greatest in my kingdom will be the least. The greatest will be the one who is servant of all. You see, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so he's redeemed authority for us. And he did that in your place. He perfectly exercised authority in our place. And now God, in his infinite grace, has taken the perfect track record of Jesus, husbands. He's taken that and he's accounted it to you so that God now sees you as having the perfect track record of exercising authority that Jesus did. That's how holy God sees you in regards to your role 
as a husband and all the ways that you've fallen short of living as the husband that God has called you to be have been paid for on the cross by Jesus. And so we now have the freedom to learn what does it mean to give of myself, to sacrificially lay down my life to lead and protect and provide for my wife and for my family. And for the wives out there, Jesus exercised perfect submission. We see this most clearly in Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus submits himself. I said Philippians chapter 2, right? Philippians chapter 2, where Jesus submits himself to the Father. Let me read this for you. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what Jesus did for you. He took on the the form of a servant, taking on sinful flesh, being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He lived his entire life in perfect submission to the appropriate authorities around him. And he did that in your place. And now God has taken, again, Jesus' perfect track record, and wives, he's given that to you. When God looks at you, he sees you as having a perfect track record of submissiveness, as perfect as Jesus is. That's how God interacts with you. That's how he sees you. And he's paid the penalty for all the ways that you've sinned against the role that God has called you to as a wife. And so naturally, the last point that we see clearly from Scripture, these are still relevant today. They're still relevant today because we're united to Jesus. We're one with him. And Jesus didn't come to eradicate the created order. He came to renew it and restore it and redeem it and make all things new. And he's begun that work in us. And so he says, what I want to do in you is I want to show how Christ loves the church through you husbands, through your loving, sacrificial care in leading and protecting and providing for your families and for your wives, you're going to show how I relate to the church. And wives, you're going to be a picture of how the church submits to Christ and how the church, yes, is even a helper in helping Jesus accomplish the mission that God has given him. Not in atonement, not in any of that, not in being a substitute, but in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so you're a picture of that as you um, help your husband, as you support him and encourage him and give him the feedback that he needs and let him know when you're struggling with negative emotions. Be okay. That's not disrespectful. You need to share those with him so he can come and love you and support you and walk through those with you. But these are still extremely relevant today. For the singles out there, again, be asking yourselves, am I living in line with this? Is this what characterizes my life? Or young guys, are you running from responsibility? Are you running from leading and providing and protecting the young women in your life in appropriate ways? In caring for your mom and whatever uh, that looks like? And young ladies, are you living your life in a way that, that nurtures and seeks to strengthen appropriate leadership in the men around you? And are honing your own gifts now while you're waiting for a husband so that you can be an asset to him and an asset to your family. These are incredible callings that God has called us to. 
And it's such a joy to know them and live in light of them as we walk with Christ, as we live before the face of God. But you know what the big problem is? The big problem is, and I know this because from personal experience, I want this. The problem is we want a list of responsibilities. Who's supposed to do what? Right? Isn't that what we want? We want this one size fits all list of husbands do this and wives do that. And you know what? I think inherently I had that, not inherently. I grew up having that because of the role differences between my mom and my, my dad. Now, the, the problem is I can take those and say that's normative. That's the way it's always supposed to be. Now, in a general sweeping way, that's true. Chris, uh, 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 scripture gives us um, general principles about what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman, that men are supposed to lead, protect, and provide, and women are supposed to strengthen and nurture and support and encourage that leadership. It's clear, and it's clear that for the most part, women are to be home-oriented and to be nurturing and cherishing the children, not that men are excluded from that because men are also supposed to be um, uh, partakers in parenting, such a huge important role. We see the, the effects of that not happening, absentee fathers in the culture all around us. But beyond those broad strokes, we don't have specifics about who's supposed to do the dishes, who's, who's supposed to do the cooking, who's supposed to change the baby's diapers, who's supposed to do these things. And you know what? As frustrating as that is for us, because we think, well, Scripture tells us about gender roles. Why doesn't it tell us specifically about what we're supposed to do? It's actually a good thing. Because you know what? The ways that we express love to our spouses and to our families and to our kids, it changes depending on the season of life that we're in, doesn't it? It changes um, depending on the circumstances. And so what God is telling us is I'm giving you these general principles, this general direction for your life, for men and women, um, ways for you to express love for each other. And the beauty is that as circumstances change, you're to exercise wisdom and to, to love each other in ways that are appropriate and encouraging and helpful. So when you ask, how do we, how do we decipher whose responsibilities are what? Well, this is where I say exercise wisdom. It's not enough for you to just know your spouse's gender you don't just love their gender, hopefully. Um, you, you love them. You love your spouse. The way that the, the responsibilities are going to be div divvied up between um, each couple is going to be different. Um, Kristen does most of the cooking in our house, um, but guess what? I know some guys that are great cooks, and they love to do it. So go and cook for your wives. Do it to the glory of God and enjoy it and love it. Um, but it's, it's, So it's going to look different depending on um, the spouses that we're married to. What are, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your likes? What are your dislikes? Think through these things together. How are schedules going to dictate this? You see, you need to know each other deeply, intimately, in order to, to flush out some of the, the particulars. But I hope, as frustrated as you may be at that answer, <laughs> I hope that you're encouraged and, and rejoice in the freedom that we have in expressing this love um, within the bounds of marriage as we have these general principles that guide um, our gender roles. I've tried to be short. I hope I have been. Not as short as I would have liked, but I want to leave as much time for questions and answers as I possibly can. Let me pray, and Chad's going to come up here, and we'll start to answer some of the questions that you have. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the love that you have shown us. We're so thankful that though we rebel against your authority, 
in regards to our gender roles and, and dis- have distorted them by our rebellion against you. You have redeemed them in Jesus and you've shown us what it truly means to, to exercise authority out of love for others and what it means um, to be uh, submissive and to encourage and support and, and, and strengthen leadership in appropriate ways. We're thankful for that and we want, um, because you have changed our hearts, because you've united us to Jesus, because you've redeemed us, um, we want to we want to glorify you. We want to be a fitting picture um, of Christ's relationship with the church and the church's relationship with Christ. And Lord, for the single folks, I pray um, that you would give them wisdom and they would seek wisdom from others in how they're doing and living out their gender roles um, so that they might glorify you in, in the calling that you have on their life and that they might glorify you as they prepare themselves um, for marriage. L- Lord, we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for this time. We pray that we would approach this time with humility and that you would be exalted. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right. I'm so expecting a lot of questions tonight. Um, so. If you want to take on the, the first one, Jay, it's pretty simple. What does ontological mean? You use the word ontological. I what did. Does it mean? Ontological means inherent. So in and of itself, uh, what is the, the inherent value? Am I using another big word that's According just not helpful? To be, it's, it has to do with your being. Right. So it, it has to do with your being as opposed to um, if I talk about your economic role, like this is your role, there's, there's your, dealing with economy. Talk about your ontology, I'm talking about your being. Right. So everybody in, in essence, as human beings, we're, nat- we're, we're all naturally equal in, mm-hmm. in the image of God. But as according to our economy, our role, we're different. Correct. If that makes any sense. So, um, does suitable in Genesis 2.18 mean the same thing as equally yoked? And what is equally yoked? Equally yoked comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It is not the same word. Um, equally yoked is referring to the idea of... In, in 2 Corinthians 6, it's actually not referring to marriage or relate, in, in that kind of relationship specifically, although by principle we apply it. The idea is, is that if you, you yoke two things together, you know, when Jesus talks about um, my, my burden is easy and my yoke is light, he's talking about yoking an animal. When you yoke two things together, um, they, those two things walk together. Um, and what he's saying is you don't want to be unequally yoked. You want to, want to be yoked with someone who is dragging you down, who's not helping you walk forward together. And so as that carries over to relationships, it would have to do with the idea, obviously, you don't, what, is, what does Christ have to do with Belial, I think Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. You don't bring together believers and unbelievers um, in, in intimate kinds of relationships like that because, because you're not going to be able to walk forward together. You're unequally yoked. Um, Anyway, all right, next question. You can take this one. Let's see here. Yeah, you should take this. What does a naturally passive man have to do in order to become a biblical husband? I'm not saying you're naturally passive, but you're more passive, oh. than, <laughs> more passive than me. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, that's very true. Uh, <laughs> see? Yeah, I just said it. And he went, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, anyway. <laughs> you see what I'm talking about? All right. Uh, <laughs> how, does he, how, does, how, does he, how does he acquire these much-needed qualities. So what does a naturally passive man have to do in order to become a biblical husband? How does he acquire these much-needed qualities? Well, I think that the first place to start is, is to recognize your dependence on the Lord 
um, and, and the need that you have for him to do this work in you. That doesn't mean that you don't work alongside him. Sanctification is God working it in us and we work it out. Um, but it's, it's falling before the face of the Lord and say, Lord, I'm always going to go this way unless you do this work in me. So I'm going to start taking steps in the right direction and I need you to strengthen me and lead me and guide me. So it's being, it's being faithful in the things that God has, has called you to do um, as a man, you, you start to see the relationships that you have with um, women around you in that way. How, how can I uh, pr- protect them? How can I provide for them, lead for them in these, these situations? Now, let me get real specific. Um, the struggles that I see common with guys my age and the ones that I struggled with myself were um, self-control is huge. Um, become a man who is self-controlled. Take a job that you don't necessarily like, but you need to have a job. You need to start making money, so just take that job. And and doesn't mean you're not looking for another job while you take that one, but step up to the plate and say, I'm starting to lead my family already before they even exist um, by, by doing this, by, by getting a job, uh, exercising self-control and self-discipline um, in regards to my, my sexual appetites, and, uh, and, and getting involved in like a mentorship relationship, pursuing um, a, an older man who's married, has kids potentially, and can start to help you think about these things. You can't do this on your own. You can't do this apart from God, and you can't do this apart from uh, the larger community of faith. So seek out those relationships. Seek out relationships with other young men who are on that path and, and will encourage you. Um, so hopefully those are some of the stop playing video games um, start having real relationships with people. These are, these are just some of the, the typical things that, that you can start doing. And, and really prepare yourself spiritually for leadership by having a close relationship with the Lord yourself. Is, is it against God's placement of roles in marriage for a woman to become a pastor? I, let, let me separate that out. Let's just, is it against God's um, you know, assignment of gender roles is what I'll say for a woman to become a pastor because I think it's a bit different. Um, it has, really doesn't have anything to do with marriage. What about a woman who has been, been called to celibacy? Is it okay for her to become a pastor? Um, let, let me define a couple terms here. First of all, a pastor is not technically a named office in Scripture. Elders are, deacons are. Pastoring is something elders do. Uh, they shepherd the flock of God. Um, you might say pastor-teacher is a named role in Ephesians 4, and that's, that's fine if we want to call that an office there. But it's essentially the same thing as an elder. Can women pastor women? Sure. Can they pastor children? Sure. Um, they can participate in, in those sorts of things. So could you technically have a, a woman who is a pastor but not in the role of an elder? I suppose you could. Um, that, that's a, a little bit distinct, however, from what we might typically think of as an elder slash pastor, uh, which is like the role that Jason or I are in. First um, Timothy 2 addresses that pretty clearly. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Interestingly, that word quiet, again, has to do with submission and humility, not with whether she speaks or not, uh, but she's to remain quiet. And then it goes on and says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, he grounds it in creation. He says, the reason I don't permit a woman to teach or be an authority over a man is because that's not the way I created things. I created Adam and then Eve. And so it's actually contrary to the pattern of creation for that to be the way it is in spiritual leadership. Um, 
And people say, well, isn't it just authority, and what about teaching under authority and all this kind of stuff, and people get all these arguments. Let me be very clear. The Greek infinitive verb there, didaskein, which is to teach, actually begins the verse. That's the emphasis of the text. I do not permit. It actually starts off with to teach. I do not permit a woman or to have authority, two separate concepts, over a man, but she must remain quiet. And the quietness is offset against the teaching and authority both. And so I, I, I don't have time to break all that down, but the bottom line is it's grounded in creation that men lead in the church, women do not lead in the church. It does not mean that women do, do not exercise very valid and important and helpful roles in the church. They certainly are supposed to, Titus chapter 2, older women teach the younger mm-hmm. um, and, and all of that, but it has to do with the leadership over men. <clears throat> I'm often asked how does that extend into other areas of life. I'm not going to get into that tonight. I'm just going to tell you that with regard to the church, 1 Timothy 3 is very clear that these are instructions with regard to the household of God or the church. That's the way the church is structured. So people say, would you have a president of the United States who's a woman? But Paul isn't having, addressing that at all. In fact, Israel had a, a leader who was a woman, Deborah, who was a judge. That, that sort of thing did happen, although that was not a good situation for Israel because it meant there were no men who were godly to step up, and they're actually later rebuked for that. But but I'm not going to get into all that tonight. You understand what I'm saying? <laughs> the point is, in the household instructions for, for the church, this is what's given to us. Um, and, and with regard to celibacy, I, I'm not sure that that has anything to do with it either, except to say that, that it certainly frees her up to do more, women, to do more ministry with women and, and children in the church as well. And people say, well, then do women ever give wisdom to men? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. So I want to just pull that one right off the table. I have women who speak into my life all the time. My wife speaks in my life. She gives me wisdom all the time. Um, there's a lady named Rosalind. Some of you uh, know her. Her name's Rosalind Strode. She's a lady I call. She prays for me. I think she told me she sets aside a day every week to pray for me. Whole day. Wow. She doesn't go here to church. She's in her 70s. And um, I call her up and, and ask her for wisdom. And she's extremely wise and she's very helpful. So um, let's see here. You want to tag team one? Because I'm going to need some help on this one. Okay, this one right here? Well, someone sent me one. Oh, sorry. good, good. We'll get to it in just a second. Um, oh, okay. As a Go single, ahead. you're going to get this one. As a single independent woman, uh, you ready? That was the one I wanted <laughs> to tag team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do, you, how do you comprehend allowing a man's gender role to take precedence once in a relationship? I'm assuming in a relationship prior to marriage. Um, I, I guess you can talk about it both before and after after marriage is not the right to word, right? To take precedence once in Before and after the wedding, I suppose I should say. Right. Um, man, I almost wish I could pull my wife up here for some of these questions. Um, uh, I, I think some of it is uh, seeing how he interacts with you. Do, do you see that impulse that we talked about where he's, he's taking the lead? Um, he's trying to protect you. He's trying to protect you in a lot of ways from himself. Um, and from getting too many emotional attachments or physical attachments or, or anything like this, do you, do you see that, that pattern in him? And how do you do that? Um, oh, that's, that one's a little bit more difficult. Um, I, it, you know, prior to being married and, and you're in a relationship and you have, you're single and independent, and, and Kristen would answer this well because she was single <laughs> and independent, um, as was Teresa when I met her, I, th- I think the issue is, is that prior to marriage, you're not in a role in which you're submitting to this man. Right. 
Let, let me just be clear about that. However, you still are relating to him as a woman relates to a man, which right. means that you, are, that you are working to take on the posture that a woman takes on with a man, which is not submission, i.e., he has headship over you because he right. doesn't, but, but it is a situation in which you're not this pushy, you know, overbearing. You guys follow what I'm talking about, right? But you're, you're supportive. You're actually looking to him to start to assert leadership. You're actually starting to see patterns develop in the relationship in which he is graciously, lovingly, in, this, in a humble way, leading. Um, so you're letting those patterns develop, but there isn't a formal situation in which he has headship over you because you're not married. Right. Um, so I, I want to be careful about that. Once you're married, then um, you, you go into that. And I think you get other women with you who understand the plight of women in this and the difficulty of, of submitting to and following very fallen, broken men and, and get them to pray with you and help you and give you wise counsel. The problem with it is, is that sometimes these questions come out and they're not given a specific circumstance. And so it's very difficult outside of a specific circumstance to give um, a lot of help. But generally, that's what I'd say. Um, really quickly, we got this. If a husband is leading the family to, to disaster by not loving them, not caring for the finances, not teaching God's word in the home, is there a point for the woman to step into those shoes? Um, you know, actually, the nice part about this question is that Peter addresses it. Was that situation ever addressed in Scripture? Yes, it is. It's, addre it's addressed in First Peter and chapter 3. If you look there, if you have a Bible, you can look there. I'll read it to you. Um, because the apostles did deal with women who had husbands who were not godly Christian men, who were not leading properly, um, who weren't loving them well, who, who were jerks, right? And it says this, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word. There's an interesting statement there. This is the context of those who don't obey the word. They're not believers. Now, Peter isn't talking about if your husband ropes you into sin with him. Okay? Right. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that, wives, you might have a husband who is this unbelieving jerk. He doesn't himself obey the word. He says, submit to him. Why? So that even some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectable and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. And just so we're clear, he's not saying you can't braid your hair, wear gold, or put on, clo clo put on clothing, right? He's not saying to be naked or don't braid your hair, right, okay? He's, he's saying that's not how your adornment is supposed to come. It's supposed to come internally. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Again, speaking of humility of deferral to other people. It's not saying that if you're an outgoing, extroverted woman who talks a lot, that you can't ever have a gentle and quiet spirit. Right. It's the posture you take toward people. And so, particularly your husband here, which in God's sight is very precious, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord... And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. It's an interesting phrase in the context of Sarah and Abraham to tell wives not to fear anything that's frightening. What if your husband isn't obeying the word? Right? What if he isn't walking with the Lord? Submit to him, trusting the Lord, that the Lord is good. 
that he has your good in mind. Don't fear anything that's frightening. Because it can be very easy to start to become fearful, can't it? You just start to become fearful because I don't trust the Lord. And, and I'll tell you that submission issues, whether it's submission to um, a boss, whether it's submission to your government, whether it's submission between a husband and wife, parent and child, you, you go down the, the submission issue always is rooted in a lack of submission to the Lord. Mm-hmm. It's always where it's at. It's, I don't really trust God to have my good in mind. He clearly couldn't have my good in mind by working through this jerk. Now by jerk, I don't mean abusive or any, you guys follow me on that? I just mean he's an unbeliever who doesn't really take care of the responsibilities that you'd like him to take care of, okay? Um, you continue to be this godly woman. Hmm. You adorn yourself with godliness and love and it will, um, it will bring about change in him potentially. Right. And if you're a, a woman in here that's going through that, I just encourage you, um, you're not going to be able to make it through that by yourself. Um, get other women around you who, who you trust, who you know are going to take you back to Jesus. And as you struggle through that, as you will, um, they're a safe place to do that. And let them know, I am really struggling. And, not, and it's not that you're looking for someone to excuse your sin, but to be patient with you as you struggle with this, even as the Lord is patient with you as you struggle through this. It can't be overemphasized. All of this stuff, we, w- the temptation is to get answers here and then go out and implement them on our own. And the very nature of what we're doing here tonight is we can't do this alone. We're not, it's, it's these, all these commands and, uh, and insights that the Lord has given us, they're all given in the context of the church. So we're to build each other up and do that. So uh, just really encourage you to, to have those relationships with other women um, who you know are going to hold your feet to the fire at times when it hurts, but also a safe place where you can say, I'm really struggling with this, and I, I, I need you to, to pray for me and help me and listen to me and, and encourage me. How do I know if, if he or she is the one? Just real quick, um, we get this, ant- this question all the time. Um, it's a category that I'm not certain exists, incidentally. So, so here's what I would say. Pick a godly person that you're attracted to and marry them. There you go. All right. Boom. Next question. Pass that one. Um, how can a single woman work on biblical submission? Go ahead, dude. This is your night. All right. Again, <laughs> a single woman. Well, this is, this is where I will start. Um, uh, showing, showing respect and love um, for your father, um, regardless of your age, is a great place to start. Um, what, what does that look like for you? Even if your dad is not a guy that you would deem very respectable and um, he would never fit the criteria for someone that I would, I would marry, um, you still have to ask yourself, how is submission showing up in, the, in this relationship right now? Um, uh, because in a very real sense, depending on your age, whether you're still at home or not, um, he still has um, headship over you in a very real sense. There's a reason we just went to a wedding yesterday um, where, yeah, that was yesterday, wasn't it? Yeah, where you, you have the, the moment when the father walks the bride down the aisle and the pastor asks, you know, who gives this woman to this man? Um, her mother and I do. It's the passing of the headship from the father um, to the husband. So that's a great place to start. Do I show respect and love and submission to my dad in appropriate ways given our relationship, depending on your age and, and place in life? And all of that. So that's a great place. And then also in the context of the church, 
um, and even your workplace or school or whatever, um, am I interacting with men in that way? You know, in appropriate ways. Again, that's where the wisdom is. We can't get into all the details. It's going to look differently in in different ways. Some guys you're just going to need to stay away from, and that's okay. Um, They are not worthy men, um, so you need to to, to stay away from them. But um, I I would look to to the relationships that you currently have, and is that how your life is characterized? I don't know if that's specific. Well, and let me follow that up with... um, if you're in an authority, you're in all kinds of authority relationships already. Everybody has some authority over them. Everyone. Everyone's in that kind of a relationship already. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really the question is how do you treat that authority already in your life? Um, are you the kind of person who submits well to your boss at work? And Jason asked this question. Start working on it. If you recognize you aren't, how do you know if you're not? Right? Well, listen, submission is not a command that Paul has to give because we already agree with people. Right? I don't have to talk to any women about submitting to men that they agree with. Right? My boss never has to talk to me about submitting if I agree with him. I'm already going to do that. Submission starts to really come in when we don't agree. That's where the commands start to really have teeth, right? Let's be tough. I don't agree. Now what? Um, And so when your boss tells you to do something you don't like or don't agree with, do you go ahead? I'm not talking about illegal or immoral activity, okay, just stuff you don't like. Do you go ahead and submit? And by submit, not do you just go ahead and do it and bite your, and bite your you know, kind of tongue for a minute and then as soon as you get to the break room, talk a bunch of smack about your boss to your friends, right? Because if you do that in that relationship, when you get married, you're gonna do the same thing to your spouse mm-hmm. with your friends. And so you're learning to practice that sort of relationship where you graciously defer to authority. Um, that starts with your kids, incidentally. What should a wife do when her husband is abusive and he doesn't want to change? What if she wants to follow him, but she's afraid of him hurting her more? Um, and then it goes on to ask me, uh, I, I'm just going to stop the question right there, the person who wrote this, and uh, not even continue with the rest of it, because the bottom line is if your husband is abusive, if you're talking about physical abuse where you're afraid of him hurting you and potentially even killing you, um, you should be separated from him immediately. You need to come talk to us, mm-hmm. and uh, we'll talk to you about how to walk through that and what to do. I'm not saying you should divorce him immediately. Please don't misunderstand me. But I am saying that help needs to be got, gained right there um, at that point. There is no submission to being beaten up. Okay? You get help right away, come talk to us. We'll help you get help. But you get help right away. You get intervention right away. And, and you pray that God will radically change this man, obviously. Um, but in the meantime, you don't stay in the confines of a situation that's unsafe for you or your children. Hmm. I, I just don't want to be, I, I don't want to be even in least bit hedging my bets on that. Hmm. Come talk to us right away and, and get safe immediately. How much authority is it appropriate to exercise in a dating relationship? Oh, if you're the guy, how much authority? You, you, don't, you don't really exercise any, right? You'll find that out as soon as you start dating a girl. But <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> But let me just say, <laughs> let's just say that you, you don't have authority over her. Nope. You, you demonstrate to her what kind of a man you are, how you lead and care for her. That's, that's it, right? Yep. Jason, you yep. just dated. I dated like 18 years ago. So why don't you tell him? She's under her, her, her father's authority, not yours. You don't, you don't have any in, any in, in, in regards to that um, whatsoever. So I don't think a whole lot more needs to be said than that. Yeah. 
Um, deal with that one later. We're sort of running out. Do you, did you have one, Jay, that you wanted to do? Because your message send fa failed. You had one that came to your phone? I think we already answered it. I'm pretty sure we already answered it. Well, I'll, I'll deal with there's I got another one, but I'll deal with that individually. Okay. Any others here? Let me see. Make sure I got them all. Um, John, that's not a question. That's a statement. Anyway, okay. Um, all right. Let me, uh, <laughs> let me pray. You, or let you pray. We'll finish off. Okay. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your grace. We're thankful that we don't have to try to figure a lot of all these things out um, on our own. Your word is clear and you, you've spoken clearly to us. And Lord, on the difficult things, uh, the nitty-gritty, help us not to, to be foolish and to try to um, figure these things out on our own. Help us to avail ourselves of the wisdom that you have given us in your word, in your son, and the collective wisdom of your people. Um, may we seek to, to live our lives before you in community, and we just pray that, that we would glorify you together um, as, as a church, as, uh, as families, and uh, that, that you would be glorified. We thank you for this time and pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let, me, let me address one question that did come in, and we oh. did because you keep saying her father, and there's an assumption implicit in there that these women all have godly fathers that are single. Yeah, that's true. Or fathers that are living or active in their lives. So, so let me tell you what, there have been young women in our church whose fathers either aren't believers and don't give them good wisdom as to who to marry and how to proceed, or whose fathers are dead or whatever. Um, and they've actually asked... Um, the, the elders in the church or the pastors, elders, slash elders in the church to sort of serve in that role in some sense for them. So that I've had girls bring their boyfriends to my house for me and my wife to hang out with so they can ask me whether or not do you think this is a good, Tara did, right? And Eric passed, right? So they're married right now, yeah? So I, <laughs> but <laughs> we've, had, we've had women do that and, and we're, we're happy to, um, the elders to, to participate in that. If, they're, if, you're in a, if you're in a great grace group and you have a really godly leader in there who you think might be able to serve in that role because he knows you, um, then, then you can put him there. And guys, it's the same thing for you is getting, you don't have a dad or a mom who's able to give you reliable wisdom and advice as to how to pursue a relationship. Feel free to ask like your grace group leaders if there's an older godly man or woman in the church who you know that can give you good advice, um, elders, etc. So that's why the body of Christ is here. Hmm. Right? The assumption isn't always that all of our family members are believers. So the body of Christ exists to be a family. That's what we are. Amen. We're a family, and we act like that for one another. So thanks. Have a good night. Have a good night. Next week is conflict in marriage, so you, you, know, you want to be Not here. Not going to want to miss that one. Yeah.